invite you to stand with me as we read from the Word this morning, found in the book of Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 21 to 26. You have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. Whoever, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or a sister, then you will be liable to the consul. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with them. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The Word of God. Please be seated. We start a brand new series today called Be Well. It's a series that will cover some of our Adventist distinctives, and I think that it's going to be a beautiful time together. I think it's going to be a really fun series for all of us. For those of you who uh, are here today who are not familiar with the Adventist tradition and some of our beliefs and practices, this is going to be a great series for you. This is an opportunity to see how Adventism can be a beautiful space in a community that you wouldn't want to settle into. It's also a space uh, through this series where you'll get to hear some of our craziness because Adventists are crazy, amen? <laughs> we are. But guess what? Every community and every family is a little crazy. If you don't realize that about the communities you're looking at, it's because you're not a part of them yet. Once you get in there, then you start realizing, oh, okay, this is special. This last week, we were hanging out, me and a few of the pastors and Pastor Ben, and I said something, I can't remember what I said. And we just started laughing and laughing, and Pastor Ben, he looks at me and he says, I, I, I don't think any other senior lead pastor says things like this to, to me. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> That's his fault for wanting to hang out. Right? <laughs> to get to know or to become is to also recognize that we, are, we have our crazy, but there's something very beautiful and magnificent about us as a family. For Adventist lifers, this is our opportunity to remember our place in the great body of Christ. It's to celebrate some wonderful concepts, and maybe along the way, it's time for us to, to slow down and lay down some of our toxic ones. Thoughtfully applying our distinctives should reflect the love of Jesus to the world, to the greater community, of the Christian body and to each other. And if at any time 
these distinctives, don't do that, then we are not living out what it truly means to be an Adventist community. Our distinctives should never diminish, should never dismantle or distract people from God. Instead, the practice and teaching of these unique and primarily Adventist practices and beliefs should draw people to God's love. Amen? So, before we look into our first distinctive today, I think it's really important that we start with one fundamental premise. And that premise is that God loves this world. Yeah, that's okay. Let's affirm that. That's all right. Some of you sound unsure about that. Is he, really, does he? He does. God loves this world. Absolutely. This is something we've learned from, uh, from, from birth. Many of us who've been going to our, our Sabbath schools and as kids and as youth and as young adults and in our we have learned that God loves this world. We sing songs about that. Remember those songs that you sing? My God loves me. Sing with me. And all the, where does it sound good? The rainbow. The rainbow shines through my window. Do you hear them? Do you hear them? They know. They know. This is, this, this is fundamental for us. We've, this must be the premise by which we come into our distinctives and remember that all of this is about God being in love with this world. It's the words of Jesus as he speaks to Nicodemus, so familiar to everyone, found in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, for God so loved this world, so loved this world, that he gave his only begotten son. This is primary, the number one foundational, fundamental thing that you and I, as followers of Christ, must have in place as we move into the distinctives. It can't be number two. It can't be um, God loves the world except for, but when. It has to be this at the very top of our list. If we're going to move through the distinctives for it to make sense, we must first start by primarily recognizing that God loves this world. Top of the list. I've been flying for a while, and, and um, one of the things that I started doing when I started flying many years ago is I started collecting airline safety brochures. Does anyone do that? No, because it's illegal. Yeah. I'm just joking. I don't collect them. Don't tell anyone that I do this. There are a few things that when I'm flying, especially when I'm flying by myself, I try to do. Um, the exit seat, because that's the poor man's first class. The aisle, because my legs need to be stretched. And I love to, I like to sometimes collect these, uh, these, these brochures, these airline brochures, because I just think it's so funny, the graphics and the way that they, they put stuff in there. I, each one has a little bit, you know, different thing. Um, but the, the thing that's most interesting to me is always the part of the instructions, right? This is the, this is the airline's uh, safety protocol instructions. It looks kind of like this. There's a lot of words in there. Has anyone here ever read these before? A couple of you. Now, you may notice on the bottom there, it says, do not remove from airline. Let's go move on to the next slide. Let's pretend like we all didn't see that. 
But this is, this, is, um, this is the requirements for sitting in the exit row. These are the most important things that you have to be able to do. The first one here is mobility, strength, and dexterity in both arms and hands and both legs is not sufficient to assist others reach the emergency exit quickly, operate the exit, and quickly pass through the exit. This is something you need to be able to do. Check out number two. Number two is this. You are less than 15 years of age. If you are less than 15 years of age, or if you have mobility issues and strength issues, you cannot sit here. But my favorite is number three. Check out number three. We're going <laughs> If you lack the ability to read and understand instructions related to emergency evacuations on this car. Ben, do you know what that's saying? That's saying, as you're reading this, if you don't know how to read this, there's, a, there's some issues here. And secondly, why is that third? That should be number one, right? Somebody say amen. That should be the first thing. Hey, listen. If you can't understand or read this, stop now. <laughs> Call out, yell for help. That should be priority number one. When we think about our distinctives and where we are moving towards, we've got to be able to put at the top of our list that God is in love with this world. That is it. That's, that's the highest of premises here. For our functionality and our mission, God is in love with this world. I found that sometimes we have loved our distinctives so much, we'd rather be faithful to our distinctives and sacrifice people. Instead of being faithful to people at the expense of our distinctives. And if we can be honest with each other, all too often the church has become more important to the church than to God's will. So let us start with this premise, that number one, God loves this world. And number two, that we are to love this world as God loves this world. This means that as, as we speak about our distinctives, it will have to live up to the measure of reflecting God's love for this world and have the application of wellness for others. And today, we dive into our first one, present truth. Present truth is the idea that God gives us new insight or reveal truth more clearly in present generations to deal with our specific time and place. Present truth, this is, this is what that idea is. It's a big one, it's grand. It's that God is constantly revealing like the light we get to see broader and wider and deeper. And as God does, it will reveal some truth for this time and place. James White puts it this way. He wrote this back in 1857. Present truth is present truth and not future truth. And the word as a lamp shines brightly where we stand and not so plainly on the path in the distance. So present truth is a truth that you and I recognize today, but may not necessarily apply to tomorrow. Hmm. The power of revealing this truth, according to James White, in the present belongs to God. God is the lamp here in his 
quote, God is the lamp. He's the one who presents, who belongs, who presents the revealing of that truth. Also, the truth that is revealed belongs to God as well. So God reveals the truth and God has the truth. And we are but a participant in capturing that truth in the present. We neither own all truth, nor can we access it fully at once. That is not our place. Otherwise, we would be God. It is not us. It's not the Bible. It is not tradition. It is God. On the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gets up to this portion where it's the six antithesis, there's six of these. We watch him at work with these phrases. I'm only going to take the first one, verses 21 to 26. But we see these phrases. You have heard that it was said, and but I tell you. I'm just going to review them really quick here. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. We recognize that right on the commandments. This is uh, mosaic. This is, this is uh, of a, a tradition that's been held for lineage and in and, and, and time and space and tradition. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother or sister, you will be liable for judgment. And if you, are, and if you, are ins, and if you insult your brother or your sister, you will be liable to counsel. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come back and offer your gift. Jesus took the ancient text from the literal taking of life, murder, and he expanded it to hate, to wrongdoing, to offensive talk, to conflict, as well as to reconciliation. This is what Jesus does with that one piece of very important command that God brought on Mount Sinai. He did not restate this commandment, he reshaped it, he reformed it, he redefined it, and reintroduced it into a community that needed to hear this truth for their time. Could you imagine just how irate the guardians of the religious law were when Jesus did this? Generation upon generation upon generation, we have followed these commandments. We have been clear about what it means to not murder. Jesus then shows up on the scene, this, this son of a carpenter, this, this vagabond, this, this one who we don't know from, from anyone, and he begins to change, reform, and re-edit the very words that God, by finger, wrote on the Ten Commandments, on the tablets. That's got to be difficult. It's got to be difficult for the people at the time to hear. As we consider what Moses, in Moses' context, might be going through, it's a primitive time where the community was fragile. There was just the birth of governance, but there wasn't much of it quite yet. Moses is trying to hold the people together. They've been enslaved for hundreds of years, so they don't have this beautiful structure to keep them together. They, they didn't have communal laws, and there wasn't a strong authoritative presence to, to enforce these laws. 
Murder was a great danger with high probability of destroying that very infant tribe. But by the time Jesus came along, in his day, there was governance and soldiers, there were rules, and there were ways to enforce these rules. So Jesus begins to change the way people had understood this truth to be. Actual murder wasn't as prevalent in Jesus' time as internal hate, malicious words, deceptive thoughts, nefarious undermindedness, and all these things could erode and grow until it finally destroys the faith community. So Jesus brings a greater understanding of truth into his generation that may not have been realized or even exist there in the context of do not murder. Jesus. He doesn't apply the phrase that I hear many other Christians around the world say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and yeah, you've all heard it. That settles it, right? He doesn't do that. Mark Davis, author and pastor, writes that, uh, that Jesus took up the scriptural tradition and reformed it, not as a lack of respect for the scriptures, but because he believed strongly in the real ongoing presence of God of the scriptures. He continues on by saying, Jesus' willingness to state the scriptures not as ending points that settle it, but as beginning points from which to reform them lends new meaning to biblical authority. It moves the word authority away from slavish devotion to the written letter to honoring the authorial power that produces the texts. Oh, that's powerful. That authorial power was present when it was said to the ancients as well as when Jesus said, but I say to you, this authorial, powerful God who speaks not only for the ancient text, but speaks through Jesus in his contemporary text and still speaks today. Present truth allows us to attribute the authority of truth to God and celebrate God as alive, to celebrate God as dynamic, to celebrate God as proactive, to, to see him moving and involved in our world about us today. God is moving in the world, wanting to reveal to us how to bring wellness to people, how to proclaim this love to this time and to this place. We shouldn't settle on what we already know. Don't settle. Let's not settle on what we've already figured out. Let's not settle on things that we've already done. What fresh takes are we all missing because we've settled for the take we know? I uh, was a part of the pastoral team in celebrating something beautiful this morning. And many of you may not be aware of this, but um, the, our Destination Sabbath School has moved from across the street in, uh, uh, from exile in Babylon <laughs> down to our campus near the center of where all things happen, near the temple in Jerusalem. Somebody say amen. 
We met a few weeks ago, and, and, and uh, I was praying about this. Me and the pastoral team, we said, you know, there's got to be a better positioning. There's, you know, there's got to be a place where it would be more accessible to the center of our community, where it's safer. They don't have to cross the street. The, uh, the young adults, the, the colleagues, they need a space, and we want to be able to make that happen. God, what do we do? And um, we talked about the kids possibly moving back under the lower level. Uh, we don't call it the basement anymore. I, please. It's the lower level. Everyone say lower level. Praise the Lord. Okay. So we moved it to the lower level, and it happened to open a space underneath us. But, but the space, ladies and gentlemen, the space, the space was a space for children with a dark avocado green all over the walls. And when I went down there, there was a, a slight odor, and I thought, man, how can we leave our children down here? And I, I, I sat at a table, me and the pastors and, and, and the leaders of this Destination Sabbath School, and we said, I believe God is possibly moving us to do something different. And, and we had a moment of prayer, a season of, of wrestling with it, and the idea that, hey, you know what, um, we were here, then we were there, and, 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 and you know, now you're going to move us again, and we've been here for a while, and, 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 and then someone in prayer, I don't know who it was, began to envision maybe what God wanted to do here. And by the time we were done with our prayer, just as we were about to head to lunch, the leadership team said, you know what? We're going to do it. And I was like, really? Because praise the Lord. And they said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make this happen. And then they started getting excited. And I loved the excitement I saw in these leaders. They started talking about decoration, and what they're going to put here, and what they're going to put there. And then um, one of them said to me, you can't come downstairs until it's done. I said, absolutely. And then three days later, I went downstairs to check it out because <laughs> I got issues. I want to show you the picture of that space. Do we have those up? Check it out. Can we give that a big round of applause? The, the Minders and the Clisbys and Lauren and Pastor Steve and Everyone else poured into the space. They gave and they made it. Everything in there is wireless, ladies and gentlemen. Destination Sabbath School is probably leaning on our older crowd. They've got the highest tech in their, in their space. Everything's wireless. They're, they're hanging in there. The space is good. All the stuff, the mold on the wall. Look at, look at the sounds and stuff. I said, man, I'm going to move my desk down here. And they looked at me and laughed, and I knew in their laughter, they went, no, Pastor, you can't come. But what happens when we move from static to dynamic, when God gives us a fresh vision, something different, something new, something uh, that could be possible but not quite in reach? How do we then pour ourselves out before God and say, God, if this is truth, if this is where you're leading us presently, we will follow, we will be nervous, we will be worried, we won't have all the answers, but we're going to follow through and see what happens, and then God bless us. Now, I would say that the Journey Sabbath School also has high tech, but I stole their TV last month accidentally. <laughs> and it's hanging in my office, right? Thank you, Journey, for your gift to my office. New things and possibilities. What does it look like for us to come along with God in present truth? Here, I'm gonna share just a few quotes from Ellen G. White, our foremother, 
prolific thinker, visionary leader. This is the one who, who put the church on her back. And uh, she had a few things to say about present truth. So I'm just going to I'm just going to share them up here on the screen for you all, um, and we can go through it. There's no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed, and that all our expositions of Scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Can the church say amen? This, this, this is our foremother, everyone. She's, she's, she's helping us recognize that no matter how long we've held on to something, and no matter how much we like it, and no matter how it feels right to us, it does not make that particular idea infallible. Here's another one. She continues. God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think that they will never have to give up a cherished view, never have occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. Wow. Mm. And then she says this. Whenever the people of God are growing in grace, they will be continually obtaining a clear understanding of his word. But as real spiritual life declines, it has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of truth. They become conservative and seek to avoid discussion. When God's people are e at ease, and satisfied with their present enlightenment, they may be sure that he will not favor them. Oh. Whenever we are relaxing on what we think we know, whenever we're settled in our ideas and we'd much rather argue and do apologetics for what we think we have, God is not in our favor. Ouch, icky timey. You hurt me, Jesus. During these early years, they shifted a lot. They moved from the idea of not believing in Trinity to becoming a Trinitarian community. They became Sabbatarians. That was something they picked up along the way from a Baptist, Seventh-day Seventh Baptist, that they learned and they said, whoa, this is right, this is good, let's do this. So they jumped on top of that. They went from eating swine. In fact, Andrew White was caught writing to Cornwell who said, hey, because he's like, hey, we should all not eat swine. And she's like, hey, Keep that to yourself. <laughs> if the Lord wanted all of us to believe that, we'd all get it. <laughs> and then, revelation. And then, ideas that we held so firmly and comfortably, we had to change. So we picked up new ways of living. We started talking about our health. And we started living dynamically because that is what present truth does. J.N. Lufbaum, he's famous for a quote from 1857, but he backs it up again here in the Advent Review. For those of you who are not familiar with Adventism, this is one of our old school periodicals. This goes way back, so part of our history is found here. This is where we learn about it. This is what he writes. The first step to apostasy is to get up a creed, telling us what we shall believe. The second is to make a creed a test of fellowship. The third is to try members by that creed. The fourth is to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And the fifth, to commence persecution against such. Hmm. This is why Lufbrow was against creeds, because 
he and many of the leaders recognize that when we start building ideas to fortify our comfort, this is the walls that we create so that we can persecute those who don't look like us. What is God saying to us today? What is God telling us as a people today? Dr. Knight writes, the founders of the Adventist Church had a dynamic concept of what they called present truth, and their understanding allowed room for both theological continuity and change. Jesus in Matthew, as he says, you have heard it said, and then he comes after and says, but I tell you, takes on the mantle of God and helps the people to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. And so it is God, not the text, that has authority over truth. Now, the Bible is a powerful and beautiful book. I hope that you all are taking time to read it through the week. I love to spend time there. But the Bible is not God. And those of us who value the Bible as God, it is called bibliolatry. The Bible, however, is this this catalyst, this catapult that, that, that flings us into the vastness of God. Like a, like a springboard into the pool, it allows us to move into this gorgeous, deep, profound God. But the, it becomes problematic when we confuse the springboard for the pool. When we dive into the springboard, that is detrimental not only to us, but to others around us. Present truth recognizes, firstly, that God is God. We are not, tradition is not, and the Bible is not. God is God. It reminds us to be humble with the truth that we carry, for God is still revealing truth today. And it empowers us to go out and recognize where God might be speaking into the world and not just from your pastor. And somebody might be like, praise the Lord, because that pastor, he's always got something crazy to say, that guy. God is still speaking in and outside of the church. Todd Balsinger, in Canoeing the Mountains, puts it this way. To live up to their name, local churches must be continually moving out, extending themselves into the world, being the missional witnessing community we were called into being to be. The manifestation of God's going into the world, crossing boundaries, proclaiming, teaching, healing, loving, serving, and extending the reign of God. In short, the church need to keep adventuring or they will die. We must continue to live and breathe deeply into present truth, looking for where God is doing things and calling us into it, and follow along courageously, or we will die. So where's God been speaking to you? In this world, what does that look like to us? Has God been speaking to you through, through your neighbor, through work, what truth is God saying through a world that has artificial intelligence and spaceships and smartphones and TikTok? What goodness is God saying to us through science 
and biology and counseling and therapy and common core math. I know God is trying to tell us something through it. We were all always meant to be dynamic learners of present truth. And if we aren't willing to do this, then we risk the danger of losing relevance to the world that God called us to love. I'm gonna end with a story about common core math, the language of the devil. <laughs> Lucifer's pun. I did not grow up with common core math. If you did not grow up with common core math, then you just hear an amen. amen. Oh, here's my support people. Praise the Lord. From the time my children got into school, common core math was just common. First grade, my daughter brings home math. And she's trying to do the common core math way, and I'm looking at it, and I'm just like, that makes no sense. Look, just put the numbers above each other, count it down. No, no, Dad. You got to split the numbers. You see, that one has the possibility of three, five. No, stop. You're hurting me. You're in first grade. Just do it my way. By second grade, the pandemic was on, and we were doing school from home. And it was at this point that I not only want to thank our frontline nurses and healthcare people, I want to thank our teachers. If you're a teacher here today, I would never willingly do what you do. Why do you do it? You go, you get in there early, even if you have kids, you take them in and you're there and then you have to deal with those children. I don't even like dealing with my own children. And then when they go home, you gotta stay there because you have homework too. Well, during this pandemic, my daughter was at home and they were doing the classes through Zoom and they were doing core math. And after one of the sessions, uh, the teacher texted me, hey, would you help when I sat down? And, and, and I'm looking at the math and I'm looking at this second grade and I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And she's trying to you know, explain to me, she's like, dad, she just listen to me. I said, I'm listening, but this is not math. This is science. I said, Dad, you're not listening. And so we're there for an hour, and she breaks down. She starts crying, and she's laying down on the table. And I'm crying, Lord, no. I didn't think it was going to be core, core, core math that was going to bring me down as a parent. I thought it was going to be somewhere in my teenage years where I had to hurt a man or something, you know? Like, <laughs> math, really? In second grade? My spirit's busted up. I sit there quietly now. I've, We've done the yelling. She's just kind of, you know, she's bawling and she's moaning. I'm sitting here and I'm crying about this whole thing. And I'm deflated. I'm defeated because I realize I'm antiquated. There's no way I can help my child. I'm behind. I want to make a difference, but I can't. So I'm there. I'm just not well in my spirit. I'm praying to the Lord, Lord, why do we have to do teaching from home? I hate this. Where's my wife? I mean, I know she's saving lives at the hospital. Why can't she be here teaching this? I'm just quiet. 
my daughter arises from her lay down like resurrection. When she sees her daddy deflated in Christ, she just, she's like, this is awkward. Usually I cry and you comfort me. But at this point, I'm going to have to put my big girl pants on and help my father. She scooches over and I'm just trying to hold it together, but I can't. She puts her little arm on my shoulder. She says, Dad, it's okay. You're old. <laughs> Punching right now. And then she says, I know the new way. I can show you. I'll bring you home. She knew that her dad didn't know how to get there. He didn't have any way. He was used to the way it was done, the way that was comfortable for him. She draws near because presently she has found truth that I have not yet. And then she says, hey, it'll be okay. I'm going to show you the way. Oh, church, we have the oh, amazing opportunity to hold each other up through these times, right? These times, right now, where there's socioeconomic, political strife among the world, where there's division in classes, there's hate, where there's a mass shooting every single week. We come to each other and we draw up and we say, it's okay. God has shown me present truth. I'm going to show you the way ah, to be a church that lives present truth.